invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. We're looking at this message in uh, a series. We had the first part last week, Born From Above. We're looking at chapter 3. Chapter 3 is rich with theology. There's a lot there. So if at times it feels like you're sitting in the student's chair at a Bible college or a seminary, uh, we try to make this as plain as we can and understandable, but these are very important doctrines, doctrines of our salvation. And this whole concept of being born from above in this case, this is our gospel. So as I've said before, this is John, the human author of this gospel. This is his diligent pursuit to reveal Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in the first chapter, we had the declaration of his deity. In the second chapter, we had the demonstration of his deity. And here in the third chapter, we see the dynamics of his deity. That, as it's defined as a word, dynamics being the force that creates change, that makes things alive, that brings about a change process, brings about a progression that's the Holy Spirit's work in us. I couldn't think of a better word to define this chapter. There's a lot here that obviously can be said in more than a single statement, but that's where we start. Jesus, for this man Nicodemus, he is not just any man. This is a Pharisee, a respected Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a, a, a scribe. He's also a teacher. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's a teacher of the law. He knows the law better than most. He knows it, every detail of it. I'm sure he has whole sections of it memorized. He has. He's the, the, the Pharisees in particular, remember, they're separatists. Pharisee means they're set apart. And when we lived in New York City, you could see the Hasidim that lived down in Williamsburg, down by the Williamsburg Bridge, walking along in their robes with the, their phylacteries and their tassels and the curly cues coming down from the hat that signified which rabbi they studied under. And they didn't have much time for anyone else. They'd really rather not engage in conversation with anyone else that is outside of the Hasidim. So they're separatists. They're, they're separated from the world. Hence, uh, you've got those that gathered at Qumran, uh, the Essenes there, and so on. So take, they take everything quite literally, down to the detail, straining out gnats so they don't swallow them in their drinks and, and so on. And there's a whole host of things that they're trying to abide by. Well, this is Nicodemus's life. That's how he understands not only life, but religion. That's his religion. And so Jesus is trying to get him off of the flesh, get him off of what man does and onto what is clearly the prerogative of God in the work of the Holy Spirit. So you see things in verse 6, for, in, for instance, where he puts him in a sort of a dichotomy. He says, uh, that which is of flesh is of flesh, that which is of spirit is spirit. Are you getting this, Nicodemus? You have to come off of the things that you've learned, that you practice in order to um, have that sense of... Uh, of, of, of separate and belonging to God. It's not brought about by anybody or anything in the flesh. Or in verse 12 where he says earthly things and compared over against heavenly things. He's trying to direct his thinking to get them off the ways in which he thought that these things were accomplished through the law of Moses and, and so on. So this morning we're going to look at verses 4. Uh, to, we'll read through verse 8 and on into 10. So let's read that together. So Nicodemus said to him in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we need help understanding. We thank you that in our day and age with the completed Bible, the full canon of scriptures, we have much more revealed to us by that same spirit of the living God who indwells those of us who are saved. And we thank you for that. So sometimes it's hard for us to understand how such a man who is so well learned, so well respected, how he could miss something that seems so clear to us. But is it entirely clear to us? That's our job here this morning, is to make things as clear as possible with regard to what this expression means, what it means to be born again or born from above. We ask that, that we might glorify you in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the whole issue with Nicodemus essentially is exposing a, a universal misunderstanding. And that is, as you look at other religions or even some versions of Christianity so-called, that there must be something that man must do. There, there just has to be. Out of the womb, we're born legalists. And so naturally, the, the vast majority of population in the world drifts toward false religions because there's plenty to do there, isn't there? There's plenty to do. So there's plenty there to feel good about because I'm participating in these things. I'm bringing about my salvation, Part participating in the uh, grace that I've received earns my justification, according to the Catholics and, and so many others. All of these systems of thought are flawed and wrong and couldn't be more wrong in the worst way. And so this is what Jesus, in correcting Nicodemus and allowing that to be part of the eternal record, is helping us to see here this morning. If we get this wrong, it has some serious consequences, doesn't it? Yeah, eternal destinies hang in the balance. So we want to study hard. We want to look carefully. We want to pray. Oh, Lord, you have to reveal these things to us. So in verse 7, he says, you must be born again. Uh, you, you must be born from above. That's a faithful rendering of that word again, anathen in the Greek. And I don't know why more don't translate it that way, because I, maybe it's just my mind, but it makes it clearer to me. You have to be born from a power, not in this place. It has to come from above. And they would know that that means God, the God, the creator, God, the redeemer, God. He has to intervene on your fallenness. You can't do this. It's literally impossible. So mankind is turned away from God. That's his problem. He's not only dead and blind spiritually, he's the enemy of God, according to Romans chapter 5. So even if God could, and that's sort of that false idea of prevenient grace, look down the corridors of time and see how we would choose, he would see us, even if he was calling out to us, walking away from him, not wanting any part of him, although we know it's him calling to us. So not only are we dead and blind, making that an impossibility, they complete lacking the capacity to save ourselves or to make sense out of the gospel, but also we're the enemies of God. So it's not attractive. As a matter of fact, we resent it. That's why they put Jesus to death. I not only reject what you're saying, I don't like you. No, no, I hate you. And you need to be quiet and we're going to make you quiet. It's nonsense to think that way. That being born again has something about that regeneration, that, that justification has anything to do with God looking down the corridors of time to see how men in the wrestling and the vagaries of men would come up on, with the gospel on their own and say, oh, yes, okay, and turn and follow him. It doesn't matter if he cracks the door and slides in a little bit of grace as they refer to the pre prevenience issue. It's not going to happen. He's dead, and dead is dead. He's blind. He cannot see. And he's an enemy of God. He's living as an enemy of God. So this is, this is what Jesus is saying. 
to Nicodemus. He takes one of the, I would think, one of the greatest examples of somebody who is completely steeped in what man is doing for his own salvation. And he's saying, you have to come off of the things done in the flesh. It has to happen from above. So what should that engender in us? If it exclusively, completely has to come from above, what should we be most active in on behalf of those who are unsaved that we love? Prayer. I don't know what the prayer of the Arminian is. I really don't know. Um, make them get this. I mean, how do you pray? When you pray, you end up praying uh, very in a very reformed way after all. God, you have to do this. It comes from above. Yeah. You're all closet Calvinists, right? So our natural inclination, because we've turned away from God, is to continue to walk away from him and also to think that there must be something we must do in order to end up in heaven when we die. But I'm not turning that way. And so we look at a host of different options, different false religions and so on, and what seems most attractive to us, or we just subscribe to the false religion of humanism. I'll be generally a good person. That's how I'll do it. It's just all various forms of the same aberrant theology, the same flawed understanding of how a person is saved. So Jesus presents this critical truth about salvation to Nicodemus. And that is, and here's the critical truth, and I want this in your outline, that no man can do anything to bring about his salvation because he is spiritually dead. And all life comes from one source, and that is God. God must bring life. That's what he's trying to show him. Nowhere in Scripture are we instructed with the how to initiate our own spiritual birth. How do you do that if you're dead and blind and an enemy of God? You don't, so it's not even attractive to you because you're an enemy. And you lack the capacity even if you had a warm and fuzzy moment for God. It's literally, it couldn't be more impossible. It's absurd to suggest. Scripture says, notice this, by the way, Scripture says you must be born again, not you must do whatever is necessary. You better be careful to do whatever is necessary to secure heaven, to save yourself. No, it's simply a proclamation. This whole issue of invitation that I've talked to you about before, it's a command. And the only way I can respond to that command is for God himself to bring to life my dead and sinful heart to see him who he is and see myself as he sees me and so run and cling to him. How am I supposed to do that myself? Have just a particularly emotional moment at a particularly powerful sermon that I... How do you do that? Sure, we can regret the consequences of our sin and come weeping down front, but we want nothing to do with him. We say we do, but we go right back to our sinful lifestyles, right? Dress up a pig, sit him at your table in your parlor, and what happens as soon as the back door is open? That little dress gets a little messy in the pigsty because by nature is sinful. We're volitional. Sure, we're making choices all the time. You made a choice to come to church. We make choices all day long. We're volitional in that sense, but his will is bent. His nature is tweaked. He can't. He can only make choices volitionally within the bent of his nature. He cannot change his nature. It's a, how do you do that? If you've had a sinful past, I know I have, you know how much you've cried out because of the consequences of your sin. Oh, if I could only change. And do you? No. Maybe for a while we hold our breath in terms of our behavior. 
We, we meet weekly at some meeting and drink coffee and talk about how, how bad we are and how we'll never be set from our, free from our sin. Well, yeah, that's true. You must be born again. You must be born from above. So it's impossible for us. Well, that's made clear, of course, when Jesus was um, uh, having difficulty with the wealthy person. Remember the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. And so you remember what he said. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to ever make it to the kingdom of God. How easy is it to get a camel through literally the eye of a needle? People try to do gymnastics, try to massage what that means. Maybe they meant the, the, you know, the gate in the, and that's the eye of the needle, you know, the, the dung gate or something. And it's tough for a camel to get through, but they get through. And it, no, he's talking about a needle, period. And so how do the disciples respond? Do you remember? Because I want you to pick up the one word that makes you think of Nicodemus. I want you to tell me what that word is. Here's what it is. In Matthew 19, verse 25 and 26, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly, what? Astonished. That's Nicodemus. What are you talking about, Jesus? What are you saying? How can that be possible? They were greatly astonished, but they said, and this is, this is what Nicodemus, we can probably assume pretty safely, was thinking. Who then can be saved? There's the conundrum again, right? Same thing that's driving Nicodemus to go find Jesus. We know you're a teacher of the truth because nobody could do the things that you do, but this is a serious conundrum for me. I don't understand. I know the law. I teach it. I sit with the Sanhedrin. He's going to correct them in chapter 7, isn't he? Hey, wait, are we judging a man before we hear what he has? This man knows the law. Who can be saved? Do you remember what Jesus says? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is what? How did we miss that? How did we miss that? It's impossible. You can't manipulate somebody into the kingdom. You can't, you can't, no matter what you did to try to manipulate their emotions, their sentimentalities, all you'll get is the emotion that's produced because of the negative consequences of their sin. Sure, they can weep and come forward. Then why do they return to the mud pit? Because it's impossible. But with God, there's the hope. What? All things are possible. And so we pray for ourselves and for those that we love. God, you must do work. That's the prayer of somebody who rightly understands the theology here. God, you must do a work. And we don't, when do we stop praying for him? Never. God gave us life physically, didn't he? He, 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 he is life. He's the source of all life, isn't he? Physically and spiritually. We would never claim that we made the decision at some point to bring about ourselves into the birth canal physically and be born. Did you get consulted on that? <laughs> I don't remember that meeting. I don't remember it at all. Why is it such a difficult thing to realize that God must create spiritual life? So salvation, you could say, is all of God. It's all of God. Salvation is monergistic. It's not synergistic, is another way the theologians put it. Coming from the Greek word energe or energy, it's not my energy. I don't even have the will to do it, let alone the capacity to be able to bring it about. I wouldn't want to. I didn't at one time. I want none of that. We grow up in America hearing about it. It's like, oh, yeah, whatever. Those religious folks, right? I love my life the way it is, but yet there's those times where I realize this is empty. There's something wrong here. Ah, he's at work, isn't he? Bit by bit, chipping away at the heart to find that entrance when that day comes and boom. Heaven opens up. The gate opens up. 
And we see the living Christ in the splendor of his holiness. And it just only points up the filth of my own vestments, my flesh. Yes. But then look, look you on the horizon, see you there across and get you there with haste. Yeah. I I have to. How am I supposed to gin that up myself? It's impossible. It's a work of God. I think I mentioned this Latin term before, the ordo salutis, as theologians call it, the ordo salutis, just means the order of salvation. And there's different slight variations. They're all saying the same thing, but some of these things happen concurrently, but some do happen before even the world was created, even before time began. And one of those things is election and foreknowledge. You know what another word for election and foreknowledge is? Love. It has nothing to do with how much knowledge God has in terms of information. It's not a reference to his omniscience. Now that's something that we can say happened when? Before time. That's why you can't name a date. That happened before time. This is something that is... Peter opens his first gospel with in chapter verse one and two, where we are the elect he's writing to according to the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the spirit for the obedience of Christ. There's the whole thing. And I only read part of those verses. That's the whole thing. We're the elect of God according to the father's will. And the sanctification of the Spirit. There's, by the way, the Trinity, yeah? What for? For the purpose of the obedience to Jesus Christ. That's how you follow Him. The message hasn't changed in two millennia. Follow me. And that's how you do it. And I'm going to equip you. I'm going to make that possible. I'm going to get you, give you the power to do it. I'm going to, be, I'm going to give you the ability to see me so that you can always follow me, to hear from me. I will clear away the wax in your ears and you'll hear from me. You'll know the right way wherein to walk. That's what it's all about, isn't it? You also have one other word that comes before all time, and that's predestination, right? Porizo in the Greek has to do with, it's, it's a word that's translated horizon. So he not only says these names that are written where? In the Lamb's Book of Life. When did he write it? Before time began. These, these are the ones that I will send my son to save. And it's not just to save. He's a pretty sharp God. He's, he's really got it all together. He set a horizon line. He knows what he's going to do with us down the road. So that would be something I would consider second, wouldn't you? Or at least at the same time before time began, because both of those are said to happen before time began. Who's doing it? He is. What could come next? How about, have you thought of this one? Atonement. Now that happened at a place in time, didn't it? When you look at uh, Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5, where it talks about uh, our election. Um, and also you can, look at, uh, you can look at the fact from Romans 6, verse 4 and 5, where it says that we, are in, we were in him when he died. So that day had to come, didn't it? It came. So now there's something that still has to happen after that. My name was written in the book of life. He set out a life for me. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works that he has established beforehand. Yeah, that's predestination, that you should walk in them. He's done it all. What is it that bristles in us against that? What is it that fights against that? It's our own rebel spirit. I want to have at least some part in this because then he's beholden to me. In some way, I get patted on the back from the Father. You did the right thing that day when you responded to that sermon. 
and you wept. And Where is that in the Bible? Nowhere. So the atonement had to happen, and that happened at a place in time 2,000 years ago. What has to happen after that? Well, we could say the effectual calling that we talked about last week. There was a point at which he called me. Um, it's efficacious for change, for life change. It's efficacious for me to be able to respond to because he gave me sight to see, ears to hear, and a heart that was made alive. So there's regeneration there, right? There's regeneration. Um, the effectual calling, you can look at John 6.44. Do you remember John 6.44? No one comes to me unless what? The Father does what? draws them there you go that's the efficacious call isn't it so he's drawing me i don't know what i'm in for but he's already got that marked out from before he even made the world spectacular it's all there i don't have to figure that out i have to follow jesus every day every moment of my life how do i do that through the words he's still speaking to me in real time should i care to pick up and read you see He has to make my heart alive through, as Titus 3, 5 says, through the washing of regeneration. Come here Tom, to me. That's the call. Come. And you're like, what is this? I need to clean you up. I need to wash you. My Holy Spirit will do that. My son has died for your sins. You're forgiven. And you are cleansed from how much? All of your what? Unrighteousness. Six has, you can't really put a time frame on these four words. So six, we find justification, conversion. We find faith and repentance. Which one comes first, second, third? Yes. <laughs> yes. I know that I got my faith from him. That's what Ephesians 2 and verse 8 says, right? My faith comes from he's, he's given me my, the measure of faith that we have, as Romans 12 puts it. He gives to each man his measure of faith. Thank you, Lord. Is there anything that I can point to that I can take credit for? Nothing. Nothing. Why would he do that? Because you've never known a love like that. Because I've loved you. In fact, you wouldn't know how to love at all had I not what? I created you in the timeline, so I know I've got to put things first, second, third for you. I loved you first. Before all time, before you were knit together in your mother's womb, I knew you. That's foreknowledge. It's, it couldn't be more intimate. It couldn't be more loving, more powerful. So the whole thing is based upon the love of God. For God so... We're coming to that verse. Remember that. I can't wait. It's wearing me out, though. Seventh is glorification, right? We can put that as last, can't we? Because when will we be glorified entirely? Mm -hmm. So meanwhile, he keeps cleansing us. He keeps forgiving us. We keep going to him like we would any father. And when we mess up and when we do things wrong and when we're not following him and we can't see him, we cry out to him like a child would. Where are you? I don't see you right now. I don't feel so good right now. I didn't leave you. I promised you I'd never leave or forsake you. I'm right here. You can't see me because what you're engaged in right now has clouded. It's put a cloud between you and your experience of the sun that you might see and that you might enjoy its warmth. Now follow me. Keep, keep 1 John 1.9 in your hip pocket. If we're faithful to confess our sins, 
He's faithful to what? Forgive us and what? How long does that cleansing take? All the way to the seventh step, the glorification. But that work that I've begun in you, I will complete. That's his promise. Who's going to? Well, me and him, right? We simply cooperate with the work he's doing. So we don't grieve the Spirit. The Spirit's trying to do that work every day in us, whether we throw roadblocks in His way or not. His promise is still there. He will complete that work. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, right? Chapter 2, verse 12, but verse 13, for it is who? God who is at work, energeto, in you. It's monergistic. It's God that's at work in you, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. Right when I was about to take some credit for verse 12, verse 13 comes right on its heels. I'm at work. I started it. I've become it. You belong to me. There's the possession issue, and I will complete it. So he who will boast, boast in whom? In the Lord. Yeah. This is so clear in Scripture. It's us who have to go to great lengths to muck it up, don't we? But we do that because of our pride. Oh, no. And because of the traditions of men. That we're teaching as the laws of God. If Jesus were here, he'd rebuke us the same way he rebuked the Pharisees. You're teaching as though these are laws of mine. These are traditions of yours. Stop it. You must be born from above. And that's something I do because I will not share my glory with whom? Anyone. He's God. Romans 8, 29 to 30, very familiar passage. But I want you to do something for me as I read this passage. For those of you who want to participate, turn to Romans chapter 8. And I want you to do something. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. So you, while you're turning there, you have verse 28, all things work together for good for whom? For those who love God. And we wouldn't have loved God if what? He hadn't first loved us. Who are called according to His. And isn't that purpose defined in the next two verses? Yeah, it is. Now, as I read that purpose, every time the word He is there, and who's the He referring to, by the way? God. No problem with pronouns there. Every time the word he is there, I want you to speak up and say he with me. I want you to see how many times it's said. This should be very clear for us. For those whom he... You missed it. See, I gave you your cue. I had you all ready. What happened? I lost you. Okay, now you say all of the word he. So see, yeah, you got to stay focused. You can't get your nap in today. All right, here we go. For those whom he foreknew also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified. How many me's were in there? <laughs> Are we getting this? I mean, You're almost embarrassed at some point. It's like, okay, so I I get it. Do you really? This is entirely a work of God. Nine times that pronoun's there. Verse 4 of our text. That was the introduction. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, listen, does he really have that question in mind? I mean, does he really not know? Uh, You know, maybe he's never had that class, you know, and maybe he's not married and maybe he really, you know, his parents never talked about things, about how a person is actually born. No, he knows there's some spiritual metaphor here. He's trying to tease it out. That's what he's doing. This is, in other words, this is actually impossible. So why are you using this? This is how far gone he is into 
only physical things, things done in the flesh. That's his whole life. That's their whole religious system. So this troubled Pharisaic ruler of the Jews, this is why he seeks him out at night. He's, he doesn't understand the teachings that Jesus is bringing forth, but he can't deny the miracles. So how is it that Jesus knows what to say to him in verse 5? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. That's Wait a second. He didn't answer his question. He was talking about physical birth. Well, do you remember the end of chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, where Jesus with those who believed in him, did not entrust himself to them. Why? He knows the hearts of every man, right? You remember that? So he knows what he's really looking for. And this is the grace of our wonderful Lord. He knows what he really is after and what he really needs to hear, and he's giving it to him. So we're getting more clarification here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Nicodemus, are you listening? This should start causing some lights to go on from the scriptures that you understand so well. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. So it has to happen this way. He's leading him in, and he's taking him to very familiar scriptures that he knows he teaches this stuff, but been teaching it apparently wrongly or in ignorance because Jesus makes this reference here. So the response shows that Jesus knows what Nicodemus is really after because that's what he responds to. So he's, his clarification here, his clarifying things turns now, you see that, from the physical birth, which is that how, that's how he got his attention, didn't he? You have to be born again. How do I? Now he's turning to the spiritual. I need to get your attention and then I need to bring you over to Spiritual things. There's two constituent parts of every human being. You are not just a physical being. You are also what? A spiritual being. If your body dies, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. He's appealing to his spirit. That spirit is dead, though, right? Okay, so that's the, that's the challenge here. So it's interesting to see how he handles this. Well, this water, this isn't, by the way, it isn't a reference to water baptism. Some make that mistake. It refers to this, I believe, to the spiritual cleansing that he should have known needs to take place. You, can you think of where I'm, what text comes to mind from Nicodemus' scriptures? Anybody? How about Ezekiel 36? Right? Verse 25 through 28. Listen to this. This is what he, the he from Romans 8, 29 and 30. This is God. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. How clear does he have to make this? There has to be a cleansing. There is water involved here. You're going to be cleansed, not just forgiven. Do you remember the twofold conundrum from last week? You're not just guilty in God's courts. That's a judicial issue. You are defiled. You are dirty. You're corrupt. So you have to be forgiven and what? Cleansed. And that's all through the scripture. This should have been more than clear to him. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. How many times does he say, I will here and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules? Verse 28, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I will, I will, I will, I will seven times. Just like the Romans passage. He makes things, you talk about the perspicuity of Scripture, he makes this abundantly clear. There's no arguing it. I will do this. I will do this. In Jeremiah 31, another passage you're familiar with, that's where we receive the new covenant, right? So we have the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. You should be as familiar with this passage as you are the other one. These are very key passages 
And this is what he is bringing in brief form to Nicodemus. He should know this. This should turn some lights on. Verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when, what do you think the next two words are? I I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke though I was their husband. Does it get more intimate than this? This is powerful stuff. Foreknowledge is powerful stuff, declares the Lord. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that what? I will make with the house of Israel after those days. After those days, let's get them in the rearview mirror. I've got a new covenant for you, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one say to his neighbor, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. There's that knowledge again. There's that intimacy. You won't have to say that anymore. You so personally and powerfully and intimately know him. For they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For what? I will forgive their iniquity. Praise God. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more even though we resurrect the sins that other people have done against us. God doesn't forget anything. Forgive and forget. What? You're hoping that I passively forget what you did to me? That's not going to happen. No, I'm to love and you're to love when we're offended in the way God does, choosing not to remember it ever again. That's what he does. By the way, seven times I will. Seven times. It couldn't be more clear. This is text that he should have been very familiar with, yeah? And so let's get into the New Testament, Second Corinthians 3, 4 to 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God. Who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not the letter, Nicodemus. Not the letter, but the Spirit. Uppercase S. Holy Spirit is referenced here. For the letter does what? That'll just kill you. Paul recognized that. If the law had not come, I wouldn't even know I was covetous and I would have been condemned. Praise the Lord. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives what? The Spirit gives life. Is that not what we need? If we've been determined to be spiritually what? Dead. It's the Spirit that gives life. Life, Nicodemus, it's not you abiding by the letter of the law that you know and practice so well. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever Whatever you're working up in your efforts to save yourself, to sanctify, to abide by some moralistic or ritualistic ceremonialism or the traditions of men, whatever it is, is nothing but filthiness, filthy rags to God. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus, think about this. If you just think about this, It'll make sense according to the scriptures that you know and the prophecies that were made very clear. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Remember Job 14.4, I have it there for you. Who can bring a clean thing out of unclean? There is what? Not one. No one can do that. There's none righteous. No, not one. They are altogether corrupt. No one seeks after God. So if God looked down the corridors... Of time at my life? I'll, I, I might hear something, but I'm not interested. I'm an enemy. God has to do something. With these dead, corrupted hearts, he has, to, he has to do a powerful work, doesn't he? If we understand, we were talking a little bit about 
what it means to be depraved this morning in the first hour. Total depravity is the term we use, totally depraved. Totally doesn't mean you're as corrupt as you could be. It simply means every constituent part of you is unescaped from the fall. Even your mind, the noetic effects of sin, knows. Nos is the Greek word for mind, and that is corrupt. It's fallen. Genesis 6 is pretty graphic about this. Verse 11 and 12, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. We're getting there, aren't we? And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. What word is he used three times here? Corrupt, corrupt, corrupted. All flesh, everyone, as corrupt as could be. And so he brought along the flood, and you know the rest of that story. Psalm 51, we just heard it read this morning. Verse 5, from that, behold, I was brought forth in what? Iniquity and in sin, my mother conceived me. I, this is my nature. We're born sinners. We, we are born dead and blind enemies of God. So there's going to have to be something that he does. What is he going to do? Ephesians 2 verse 3, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That was us. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is a global situation. This is a throughout all time since the Garden of Eden situation. Psalm 14, 1 to 3, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. I don't, I don't hear anything. There is no God that I have to answer to, right? They are corrupt. There's the word again. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. What about the guy who's working for the Peace Corps? Seems pretty philanthropic to me. Who's he doing that for? The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Is there anything that equivocates in Scripture? Is there, is there any sort of, I don't know, that's a gray area. <laughs> are you kidding me? It's, this is in black, as black and white as it comes. And it's repeated. You think I'm redundant. Well, I am. But the scripture, that shows you how dead and blind we are. He has the grace and the mercy to say it. Listen to me. Listen to me. And for some of us, it took quite a while, right? He had to bang us in the kneecaps until we finally fell. And now it makes sense. Now we understand Romans 3.20, for by the works, Nicodemus, see Paul gets this, Nicodemus needs to get this, for by the works of the law, no man, no human being rather, will be justified in his sight. Well, wait a minute, we have all these laws of Moses, isn't this how it's done? A greater than Moses is coming. A greater than Moses is coming. He's here. No man, no human being will be justified in his sight from any works of the law since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we should recognize this isn't getting it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not accomplishing it. No matter how I moralize my life, no matter how much ritualistic or habituated church attendance or religious services I might do it, it's not going to get it. You must be born again. You must be born from above. And so we pray. We pray and we witness. We witness and we pray. We witness and we pray and we pray and we witness. We appeal. We don't go, ah, fui. Unless it's uh, and unless it's a uh, don't cast your pearls before swine because they'll trample them in the mud and turn around and rend you. He doesn't ask you for that. 
that which is born of spirit is spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can bring life, birth, and growth. That's it. Only the Holy Spirit. Nothing I do can bring that about. Psalm 51.10. Remember when this was read this morning. Create in me a what? Clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Galatians 6.15. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. See, so the Gentiles together with the Jews, so circumcision's not going to do it, uncircumcision's not going to do it. No, nothing you do is going to do it. You need to be made new. You need to be made a whole new creature, a whole new creation. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, right? We must be reborn into a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, who came and opened up my heart, made it alive, showed himself to me. You're in Christ. You're justified. That person is a new creation. The old has what? It lingers here and there, though, doesn't it? Behold, the new has come. Praise the Lord. I now, I'm now, rest what's restored in us is passing on Pacare. I'm back to what Adam had pre-fall, which is able not to sin. He broke the power of sin as he paid the penalty for sin. Amen. But after we sin, we are non-passe, non-Pacare, not able not to sin. And one day we'll be like Christ. Non passe pacari. Oh, savor that in the Latin. Not able to sin. Won't that be awesome? I can't wait. But that's not up to me either. <laughs> Second Corinthians 1, 20 to 22. For all, listen, this is amazing. Passage, for all the promises of God find their yes in who? In Christ, find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who has established us, in case we still aren't clear. It is God who, has, who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and giving us his Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I will do what God says. You belong to me. I've put my seal, the seal of a king. That signet ring is in the wax. You belong to me. These are papers of ownership and I give you my Holy Spirit as a down payment. As an Arabon, you are, this is my engagement ring. Because I was once a husband and you broke that covenant. And now I brought a new covenant because my love is inexhaustible. My love is without fail. I will come after you. They call me the hound of heaven. I will find you because I love you and you belong to me. <sighs> what do you say after that? Thank you. <laughs> exactly. That's all you can say, right? Amen. Verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't, don't. <laughs> I love that t-shirt or coffee cup that says, pardon me while I overthink this. Have you seen that one yet? It's great. Just hang on a second while I overthink this. I see the wheels turning. All that law, all that... Those gears are going, Nicodemus. Don't marvel over this. You must be born from above, from the water and the Spirit. You should know that. Marvel, thomazo, to be amazed, to wonder. Obviously, as I said earlier when we started, he was astonished, to use that term. He's astonished like the disciples were in Matthew, where they said, how can anyone be saved? They were astonished by the things that he said. With God, all things are possible. Listen, if he can break in on the deafness, the dumbness, the thick-headedness, the sinfulness of this wretch, anybody can be saved. 
So he's stunned because to him all of it sounds utterly absurd, right? So for Nicodemus, I mean, he's taught that salvation comes through the acts of men, dedicated to performing the laws of Moses, the laws of God. So he's hearing this as something he must do. How do you get born again? And Jesus is turning, and we will continue this, obviously. Rather, Jesus is telling that it must be something done to him that he can't possibly bring about. The man who asked Jesus for help with his demon-possessed son, if you remember that, do you remember when he said, if you can do anything? Isn't that a beautiful place, a beautiful scene? If you can do anything. And Jesus replies, if I can. <laughs> I would add, are you kidding? Do you know who you just asked? You, well, let me put it this way. You asked the right guy. You asked the right guy if I can do anything. Hmm. All things are possible for one who believes. Simply believe. John's whole gambit with this gospel is that you would see inescapable, undeniable proof of the revelation that Jesus is the Christ and that you would what? Believe. Believe. And only then do we know that God has done a work, a powerful, powerful work. This, you must receive spiritual life from above, is clear, and it's the greatest gift any person could ever receive. Amen? person does nothing to bring about their own birth, physically or spiritually. We have to remember that. There's nothing that can bring about physically my spiritual salvation. God has to do it because I was born a spiritual stillborn. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. We don't know who he's going to light upon. It's up to the prerogatives of God. It's up to him who set those names in the book of life long ages ago. You can't see him. He's spirit. And we're confined to this physical realm. So we can't see things spiritually. The wind blows. Numa. No one knows where the wind originates or where it terminates. You can't, we can't determine that. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. But listen to this. This is interesting because that, the word in this context can also be translated the Spirit breathes instead of the wind blows because it's the same word, pneuma. It can always, all, all, also refer to breathing or a breath, wind, I would prefer that definition, and it's a responsible one, a translation rather. The Spirit breathes. You don't know where, when, or on whom He will breathe into the heart and make someone alive. The breath of life, it made me think of. You see the breath of life in Genesis, right? It's in a, a few different places. And I've isolated, of course, when man is created, Genesis 2 and verse 7, you can see parenthetically a number of places where it talks about the breath of life. That's what has to happen. So we see in the creation of man in chapter 2, verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and what did he do? He breathed into his nostrils what? The breath of life. It's said in a number of places. The Holy Spirit of God brings life. It's the only way life can come. Any life that is created and sustained. It is the breath of life. Don't marvel at this, Nicodemus. So the Holy Spirit is literally the breath of life. So an internal change takes place whereby we no longer strive in our own effort. We get this. To obey an external moral code as, as we learned, but instead we respond to an internal impulse. This, this dynamic, this force 
that brought something to life and made a change, a heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh so that it can see spiritually again. So regeneration, justification, repentance, and faith change the direction of life, the affections of the heart, and duty now becomes our what? Delight. I, I, I witnessed this firsthand in my life. The things that I had affections for, the directions I was going in life have changed radically. There's things that I used to really be into. I don't care anything for anymore at all. And there's things I used to participate in that I'm not interested at all. They have no hold on me because this process that God and God alone brings has changed my life. That's epistrepho, isn't it? I was walking this way and then my repentance, epistrepho, I've turned and seen God. I'm no longer an enemy. He is my, what? Friend. He's my father. He's my friend. He's my creator. He's my sustainer. He's my redeemer. He's my friend. Praise the Lord. For I will finish with a few verses. For now things have changed. Romans seven twenty two. Paul writing, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Because it's not incumbent on me to bring about my salvation by abiding by these things. That just got me in trouble. Psalm 40, verse 8, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. That's exactly what God said he would do in the new covenant, right? Psalm 119, there's a number of places, isn't there? Psalm 119, 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Verse 47, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I want to know how to walk the way my creator intended me to walk before sin. I want to know what that feels like, what that looks like. I, 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 you want that. You have that, that craving, that desire. Verse 111 from Psalm 119, your testimonies are my heritage forever for they are the joy of my heart. And 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. What happened to this guy? I mean, this is a powerful love sonnet for how much he loves the commandments, the precepts, the testimonies, the law of God. How does that happen? You wonder if Nicodemus, you wonder what he did with Verses like this, don't you? This was in his possession. He knew Psalms well. Written in 900 B.C., thereabouts, most of it. How can these things be, verse 9? This is altogether too much for a man who has spent his life believing that his whole life that as a person is justified through ritual sacrifices, moral behavior, and perfect obedience... And the traditions of men. That's how he's going to get there. Jesus said, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? You should, Nicodemus. I'm glad you came to me by night, right? You are a the, definite article, the preeminent teacher in Israel. If you don't get this, it's a good possibility. Very few people will. But that brings God glory, doesn't it? Because he has to do a work or it is impossible. Incapable and unwilling. That's how we are in the dead blind state. Jesus said in John 6.33, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the power in these truths. I thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit in bringing us from death to life. We thank you, O Lord, above all for two things primarily, that is forgiveness.
and cleansing. We needed both. We continue to need these things, O Lord. I pray, O Lord, that if there's anyone who has heard these words that are timeless, that are powerful, and suspect that it is coming from you, that is you, in fact, who bring that understanding to them even now. O Lord, may they yield to you. Bring them to the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. They know they're sinners in need of forgiveness and cleansing. Bring them, O Lord. Draw them. And may we never grow weary in well-doing in presenting the gospel to the lost and dying. May our hope be in you that our prayer life is vibrant, active on behalf of those who are perishing. And may we never grow weary of that work because we want to see you at work in them. And when someone is saved, not only is it a marvel to us, but we rejoice in it together with a host of angels in heaven. We want that, O oh Lord. You've, you've given people to us to love. O oh God, save them. Save their souls. In Christ's name we pray.